Amen. All right. Happy Easter, y'all. Have a seat. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here, and it's a tremendous blessing to have you gathering with us today. We've got a lot to celebrate. Nothing more, though, than the risen Christ, because he is risen. Jesus Christ is risen, and he's ruling, and he's reigning from the throne of all thrones, currently speaking. But why did he die to begin with? Well, let's go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was of, over the face of the deep. But the Spirit of God was active, hovering over the face of the waters. And God spoke, and he said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the very first day. And then God continued creating for five more days. And then he rested on the seventh day. God created all things, and he declared all of creation good. All of it good. And as a part of this creation, this perfect creation, God gave our first parents, Adam and Eve, he gave them one rule. He gave them one command. There were infinite yeses across all the created world. There was only one no. There was only one rule. Do not eat of the fruit of this particular tree. And our first parents chose to do their own thing in their own way. And that's a simple definition of sin. Choosing our own thing in our own way. They rebelled. Rather than doing God's thing in God's way, they rebel and they do their own thing. And God being perfectly just, he must punish any rebellion, all rebellion and sin. And God does not, nor can he ever tolerate or accommodate sin. His justice will not allow him to do so. Well, we learn later in Genesis chapter three, the repercussions of that sinful act of our first parents. To Adam, God said, because you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. Death. For out of the ground you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. Death. We brought the bad. We brought sadness. We brought disappointment. We invited brokenness into the created, good, perfect world that God had designed. We did this through our rebellion because we thought we knew best. Not only are we made sinners by birth through our connection with our very first parents, Adam and Eve, but we're also made sinners by choice as you and I choose to sin even this morning. All of us has sinned this morning. We choose to sin. And through our rebellion, we've brought the curse and death upon all of us. And what's the worst thing about it all is that we're now separated from our, from our creator. We're separated from God. And we all, each of us, long to, to be at a knowable, discernible, uh, experiential peace with our creator. 
We want this. Our hearts are continually restless until our hearts find their rest in a restored relationship with God, our creator. That, my friends, is why Jesus, the son of God, the Messiah, it's why he died. He didn't have to die. He chose to die. And he did this in order to restore us back into a relationship with God, our creator. 2 Corinthians 5.21 speaks of this. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might be fit for heaven, fit for a relationship with God, made perfectly righteous. And be reminded of, of John chapter 3 and verse 17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. And then Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And it's no accident that he dies on the cross with a crown of thorns, embracing one of the curses placed on us, which is the thorns and thistles. Even in this, he takes the curse upon himself. So Jesus Christ came to earth and became a curse for you. But why? Well, Jesus Christ, he didn't die just a normal death. He didn't just die like a gruesome, normal death. When I die, I die. There's no significance to my death. I'm just not here. But when Jesus died, there was significance to his death. There was a purpose behind his death. You see, in his death, Jesus was suffering and dying as our propitiation. Propitiation is a big theological word that means satisfaction. You see, because God is holy, he's a holy God. His anger and justice burns continually against sin. And God has sworn over and over in scripture that sin must be, and sin will be, make no mistake about it, all sin must be and will be punished. There must be a satisfactory payment for creation's sin against the creator. So what's the solution? God sends his son to us so that he would be our substitute. He would take the sin of mankind upon himself in agony and through his very own blood. God's just wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross. He didn't just die. He suffered, he suffered God's wrath on the cross. God's just judgment that we deserve was burned out on the cross when his only son died as our propitiation for our sin. And this is love. According to 1 John chapter 4, in this, the love of God was made manifest or known to us, among us, that God sent his son into the world so that we might live, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not necessarily that we've loved God first, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. A word picture for propitiation is that of a sponge. There's a sponging effect to the word propitiation and its original meaning. You see, Jesus suffered in our place for our sin as our wrath sponge, absorbing all the punishment, all the judgment, all the wrath that you deserve. He takes upon himself for you as you. That is marvelous mercy. It's such grace and love. You see, the cross is what you deserve and the grave, eternal death is what you deserve. But Jesus endures both for you as you if you would simply believe him and hope in him. And like a kid, simply trust him. You see, Jesus endured all the punishment, all the wrath, every bit of it owned by Jesus Christ. You might have asked yourself, you've certainly heard it asked, 
Why do bad things happen to good people? In all of human history, it's only happened once, and he volunteered for it. You see, Jesus took it upon himself to be fully responsible for you. He didn't leave it up to somebody else. God did not leave it up to you to try to be good enough, try to work hard enough, or try harder and dig deeper. Jesus did all the work that's necessary. And what's so amazing about Jesus, what's so amazing about it is not merely that he died for us, though that is certainly important, but what's even more magnificent is that his death wasn't the end of Jesus. The movement that he began and that miraculously, remarkably, still continues to this very day. All this happens because of what takes place after the death of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 1, it says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, a lady radically changed by Jesus. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came back and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of this angel, the Roman guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was definitely crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Now I want you to come and see the place where he lay, and but then go quickly and tell disciples that he's risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you're going to see him. I've already told you so. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear, understandably so, and joy, understandably so. And they ran and told the disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. You see, the grave could not hold Jesus back from life. All of our sin placed on the shoulders of Jesus could not hold Jesus back from life. Satan's power fell far too short in holding Jesus back from life. And death's damned grip is simply too weak to keep Jesus down from life. In just three days, Jesus beats death and he comes out of the grave declaring and announcing victory. It's like the resurrection was God's way of stamping paid in full all across human history so that you would not miss it. And we celebrate Easter not only because Jesus was victorious in his resurrection, but also because his victory over death is our victory over death. The resurrection is God's way of saying it counts. The work of Jesus Christ for you is enough. Or to use my son's words, it is finished. And because of this, you and I can boldly approach the throne of God's grace in our time of need. It's like the resurrection was God's way of saying that Jesus is to be taken seriously and he is not a waste of your time or your thought. You know, if Jesus rose from the dead, the way I see it, you've got you've to accept everything that he ever said. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether you like his teaching or even his followers, but whether or not he rose from the dead. You've got to account for what history records. You've got to account for the fact that hundreds of people collectively see Jesus after his resurrection at the same time, and you don't have group hallucinations. You have to see, like, why did, a, why did thousands of Jews and Greeks totally change their worldview and believe Jesus Christ in a day? How does that happen? 
The way I see it is you have to think through that and come up with a plausible answer. You can't just say, well, I don't believe it. I encourage you to ask, well, what do you believe about it? I mean, personally, I find one of the greatest apologetics to Jesus being legit and actually beating death is when I see the change, the radical change in the behavior of the 11 disciples, men, just like me and you, people just like us, nothing special about these disciples, clunky, confused, clumsy men who followed Jesus. Something happened to those 11 men. Something happened. In 60 hours, they went from spineless, scared men, literally running off in fear for their lives. In 60 hours, they go from that to being willing to suffer greatly, to become martyrs, to be boiled and burned alive, to be tortured for their belief in Jesus Christ. Now, you and I, we might argue for something that we think to be true, but we're not going to suffer for things unless we're absolutely convinced, thoroughly convinced through and through that they're true. And so how do you account for that? As you read this in history, how do you reconcile this event happening? And it's not fair for you to, to simply say, well, I don't believe in the resurrection. I encourage you to come up with a historically possible alternate explanation for the birth of the Christian church and the change in the disciples that we see as recorded in history. And there's simply not one except that Jesus is alive. Well, I just can't believe it. I just can't believe the resurrection. Well, then, friend, you're no longer doing history. Now you've made it a leap of faith. You're desperately holding on against the evidence to deep faith that Jesus is dead. You've got convinced faith, rich faith, thick faith that Jesus is dead. That's what you're doing. See the large amount of faith that you're using to not believe in Jesus. You're desperately leaping the way I see it against the evidence by faith to stay away from what it is that can give you freedom and forgiveness and peace to make you overcome death and live forever. And I encourage you to come up with a plausible explanation for the radical change in the disciples as well as the explosion of the Christian church. And there's not one because the fact is Jesus is alive and you believe that and you're forgiven of your sins and you're restored back into relationship with God. You see, during his perfect life, Jesus overcomes sin. And on Friday, Good Friday, he overcomes the penalty of God's sin. That is enduring God's wrath for you and for me. And on Sunday, he rose, overcoming death, giving us life, eternal life. He is risen. He's overcome. And there is ultimately victory in life in and through Jesus Christ. Now, growing up, I would look at, at Jesus as sort of like, I don't know, he seemed untouchable. Jesus seemed unrelatable for me. It's like he was uninterested in me. He was too big of a deal to mess with me. Then as a young adult, as a teenager, Jesus seemed to always just be mad at me. Like I was constantly frustrating him. Like a hard to please football coach or an angry band teacher. Not that I've had either. <laughs> but it's like he knew what I looked at. He knew what I thought. He knew what I did. And so I knew that he was, must always be disappointed in my life and how I chose to live. And then as a pastor, I'd speak of Jesus as a way of causing fear and shame and guilt in people in order to produce a temporary change in their behavior in a positive direction. I did this unintentionally. You see, that's all I had. I wasn't a Christian yet, though I was a pastor. But then I became a Christian. And so then as a Christian dad, as a Christian husband and a Christian pastor, I embraced the hope of the gospel and it changed everything. 
Looking back as a kid, I was just religious, merely religious. As a teenager and young adult, mere religious, merely religious. As a pastor who wasn't a Christian, just simply religious. But then God saved me and he opened my eyes to the glory of the gospel and he changed my heart. It was more than me changing my actions. He addressed something that I could not address. And that is my heart. And through my religion, I feared God, not in like a, I'm in awe of who he is type of fear, but more like a dread. I dreaded God. I never felt comfortable with God. I never felt like he wanted to be anywhere near me. I feared all, always like not always being perfect. I felt like I had to be perfect all the time or I'd be disappointing him or making him mad. But through the gospel, through God saving me and changing my heart, now I don't fear God. I don't see my mistakes and my sins as things that cause him to be disappointed with me. It's freeing. It's freeing and, and I'm forgiven. He's taken care of all of my sins 2,000 years ago as all of my sins were future sins 2,000 years ago. He's covered all of them. And Jesus said that we experience feeling free, like we experience a genuine freedom within our mind and within our heart and within our life when we know the truth of who he is and what he's come to do. So it's like this for me. Mere religion says, I've messed up. My dad's going to kill me. That's what religion does to you. But what the gospel does, it changes it. I've messed up. I better call my dad. There's a difference in posture. It's the same kid. It's the same sin and error and mistake. But something's changed with the father. What's different? What was it? His wrath, the very thing that I feared, what it was that I dreaded. I knew I had messed up. I knew I was to be punished. I knew he must be mad at me. That wrath had already been exhausted on somebody else for me. And this is the work of Jesus Christ. He's our wrath sponge. And friend, you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're saved and you're born again. So I invite you this morning on this Easter Sunday, 2023, to believe Jesus, to embrace Christ, still holding on to skepticism, still holding on to questions, but reaching out for Jesus Christ and asking him to change you and reveal to you who he is and what he's done. And there are some among us this morning who wants you to know that they believe Jesus and they're here to be baptized right now to publicly tell y'all that they love and believe Jesus Christ. And I invite Gordon to come along with the musicians to lead us through this special time. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.